0: Heavenly Father, in your presence we pray, help us to see Christ. Help us to realize that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins and the wages is death. The outcome is eternal punishment. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And having embraced that, change us forever. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. It was Mark Twain who once said, the only one who really likes change is a wet baby. (laughs) And there's a lot of truth to that when you think about it. We resist change. We would rather stick with the status quo because change is uncomfortable and unpleasant and uncertain. And so many of us resist it. But as Harold Wilson once said, the person who rejects change is the architect of decay. The only human institution that rejects progress is a cemetery. <laughs> so we all have to change. But on the other hand, many people like change, or at least so they say. The ubiquitous political commercials by hopeful candidates who are saying, elect me and I will change your world of chaos. (laughs) But ironically, the people who talk about change, often are constantly changing their own positions and views, which seems to me a, a, a rather challenging point. They want change, they're just not exactly sure what kind of change they want. But change is inevitable. We have to face it. And maybe it was Leo Tolstoy the Russian author, who gives us the proper perspective on change. He said, while everyone thinks of changing the world, very few people think of changing themselves. Let's change everything else. And God says, you know, change is a good idea. Let me start with you. And you say to God, I'm not as bad as the rest of this world. And God says, let me start with you. In that wonderful text of Scripture, Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul acknowledges the importance of change. In fact, he strategically pivots his thinking from the first 11 chapters in which he gives us wonderful basic Bible doctrine. It's a treatise on the gospel. It's rich and full. But when he gets to chapter 12, he changes to focus about our change. Romans 12.1, I urge you therefore, brethren or brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, when Paul talks about change, which he'll focus on in the next verse, the very first thing he tells us to do is to present our bodies to him. Now that would have been shocking to many of his readers who come from a Greek culture. Platonic thought was that the Bible was evil and at best a hindrance. The body was a tomb in which the human spirit uh, was, was confined and longing to be set free. The body's bad. The spirit is good. That was the thought of the day, but the Bible tells us, don't let the world conform you to its ways and its thoughts. God made our bodies from the dust of the ground for a holy purpose. You say, well, that happened before the fall. Well, that's true. But after the fall, Jesus Christ himself, God, took on a human body. Which forever and always declares that there's something good and important about the body. And then the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? The one who comes from God, who is God. And you don't belong to yourself. This body is mine. And the first act of worship is to present your body to God. Get this. As a living sacrifice. There's an oxymoron for you. (laughs) Two words that come together that seem to contradict one another. Why, in the Old Testament, the effectiveness of a sacrifice was precisely in its death. The word sacrifice means to kill. So to to kill something and have it yet living seems like a contradiction. And yet Paul has already told this back in chapter 6 of Romans. Verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but what's the rest of it? Alive to God. Dead to self and sin, but alive to God and his spirit. And that's what a living sacrifice is all about. He said in chapter 6, verse 13, present the members of your body, not as instruments of unrighteousness, but as instruments of righteousness. And that's exactly the same theme he's picking up again. Present your body, same word, same verb, Present your body as a living sacrifice. By the way, this is in the aorist tense, which seems to imply that it's something we do once and for all. Now, I'm not such a stickler into thinking that this can only happen once, but often in our lives, there is a time in which God gets a hold of us and there's a dedication that is so meaningful and we build upon it. More often than not in our lives, there are multiple dedications. But it's the idea that you present your body like you would an offering. You present it, and then you go your way almost with no more thought about what you just gave to God. It's done. It's his. No one would put the sacrifice on the altar and then on their way out say, no, wait, wait a minute, I want that back, and pull it off. Present it to God as a living sacrifice. This is what Paul meant when he said in Galatians chapter 2, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Is that not an oxymoron? I'm dead, yet I'm alive. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, which is good, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now what is our motive Paul tells us in verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the what? Mercy of God. Translators do different things with words, but this word mercies is in the plural. And that's a Hebraism, which means it is varied and multiplied. It comes in many different ways and it keeps on coming. It's the mercies of God. God is a God of mercy who blesses us with abundant mercy. Mercies in many ways. And because of all of these great mercies, I'm compelled to give myself to Christ. See the reasoning? F.F. Bruce said, if theology is grace, then ethics is gratitude. Gratitude. If theology and the gospel is all about grace, and it is, then ethics is gratitude. And it is no mistake that the Greek language has but one noun to describe two words. It does double duty. The Greek word charis means grace and gratitude. Because if you're a recipient of God's grace, you must be filled with gratitude. Which means if I don't see gratitude in my life, I've forgotten about God's grace. But when I get a hold of God's grace, when it gets a hold of me, like it did in that song about being dead now alive, when God's grace gets a hold of you, gratitude and presenting your body to God, which belongs to him anyhow, is your only reasonable response. Did you get that? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is holy. This is pleasing to God. And it is your reasonable service. Well, here's here's another word that has a lot of meaning to it. It comes from the Greek word where we get the English word logical. And it has the idea of the word in it, the word that is rational, and reasonable, So it is a reasonable act of worship to respond this way. It's reasonable because it's the only logical response to grace. To resist grace, to ignore grace, is insane and fatal. But to respond to grace with gratitude, that's the only reasonable response. That's an intelligent, a logical response response to worship. Worship is not just feelings. It is that, but it is logic based on truth, the word of God. But the New American Standard translates this word spiritual. It's only found twice in the Bible. The other time is in 1 Peter chapter 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. And that word The word, the spiritual word, the milk of the word is this idea of a reasonable word from God, a rational, spiritual. So our worship is not just intellect alone, but it's emotions, it's mind and heart. It's not merely ceremonial, but it is that. In other words, you cannot worship God only by gathering with the people of God if your heart's not in it. But you cannot worship God properly if your heart's in it and you don't gather. The body has got to be involved as well as the heart and as well as the mind. That's what he's saying. Your body's important. Present it in worship to me. William Barclay said, real worship is the offering of everyday life to God. So I present my eyes that used to be all about lust and greed. And I present them to God to look to him in dependence. My hands that were swift to shed innocent blood, I, I now commit to deeds of good service. My feet that would run away from God's will now are feet that are driven to walk with God. And to do justice. The Bible tells us this is what transformation is all, this is what worship is all about. It's interesting. Way back in, uh, the, in the end of the fourth century, one of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, said the same thing about John 12. How is the body to become a sacrifice? Let us then from our hands and our feet and our mouth and all of our other members yield our first fruits, our best efforts to God. The eye look upon no evil thing. It has become a sacrifice. The tongue speak no nothing filthy. It has become an offering. The hand, no wicked deed. It has become a burnt offering. And it's not enough to stop doing some things. You've got to start doing the right things with your body. So when I present my body to God as an act of worship in response to all of his mercy to me, that's part of it, but not all of it. How can I really get it done? And I think the answer is verse two. What does verse two say? Romans 12, two. And do not be conformed to this world. If you're going to present your body to me, God says, don't let it be shaped and fashioned by the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what God's will is. His good, pleasing, or acceptable, and perfect will. So now we have to not only present our bodies, but renew our minds. And I would argue Paul is saying the way you present your body as an acceptable sacrifice is to renew your mind. You've got to stop conforming to the world is exactly what verse 2 says. Some of the translations have that word. It's implied that they've been doing it. It's time to stop. We're so fascinated by our culture and intimidated by others that we just want to fall into their ways. We give into the spirit of the age, this present evil age, as it's described in Galatians chapter one. Jesus came to rescue us from the evilness and wickedness of our age. So don't conform to it. I have some Good descriptions of conformity to the world. This comes from Trench, an old theologian, Church of England, I believe. Do not fall in with the fashions of this world, nor be fashioned to them, but undergo a deep abiding change by the renewal of your mind, such as only the Holy Spirit of God can produce. Or how about this one from William Barclay? Don't try to match your life to all the fashions of this world. Don't be like a chameleon which takes its color from its surroundings. There are too many chameleon Christians. And you absorb the attitude and the fashions of the day. Now I'm not talking about dress as much as I'm talking about mind and thoughts and worldview and desires. J.B. Phillips has this classic translation in his paraphrase. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. The church is to be in the world, but not of it. You ever heard that? Jesus prayed in John 17, I pray that you'll keep them from the world, not that you'll take it from it, uh, out of the world, for they have to be in the world, but keep the world out of them. It's like a boat. It's great when the boat's in the water, but it's bad when the water's in the boat. We're in the world, and so we should be as lights. For the gospel of Christ, but don't let the world take over you. A code of worldliness can cover up the Christ within. And it may be hard for others to even know that you believe because you do and speak and think and look exactly like them. Remember that old statement, if you were accused for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That hurts, but it's true. Stop conforming to the world. But be transformed. And perhaps you've heard this before, but the word, the Greek word behind transform is where we get the English word metamorphosis metamorpho. It's actually two words. The first means trans or change. Actually, the word meta can mean many different things. It's used all throughout the scriptures, and it depends the case it takes and the word it's connected to. But here, it means the idea of again and is form. When you study another language, you study its morphology. You study its structure of nouns and verbs and everything else. Morphe is form. So what he's talking about is change your life, change your outward form, change the body that you present to God, make it holy and well-pleasing to him by offering it as a sacrifice, not doing what you used to do, but being transformed in your outward details. It's in the passive voice, which means this is something done to us, not something done by us. God has to transform you. But we can give it a kickstart by renewing our minds. By the way, this word, metamorphosis, metamorpho, is also found in Matthew 17. But before we get there, let me just say this. I don't think I ever thought of it this way, but when... Jesus, the eternal Son of God, before he came to earth, he was in the form of God, right? Whatever that means. Philippians chapter 2. Who, being in the form of God, did not think equality with God something to be held on to. But he became in the form of a what? Man. Man. And a servant. So he changed form. And the Bible tells us that the form that Jesus was in was an itinerant preacher dressed as a Galilean peasant. He was a man. And not a white European, as sometimes we see in the pictures. He was Middle Eastern. But Matthew 17... Oh, I wish I could have been there. I hope I get to see the tape when I get to heaven of Matthew 17. You say, what's that? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured. Just take a wild guess what the Greek word is behind transfigured. Metamorpho, the same one as we saw in Romans chapter 12. Jesus was transformed. And what was transformed? His outward form. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as lightning. He became translucent, as it were. The body that once shielded and veiled his deity somehow became open, translucent, and the deity within began to shine out. And Jesus was transformed from the form of a servant back into the form of deity, just for a brief time. That must have been amazing. And so now Paul tells us, I want you to change your form. You used to have this form of lying and deceit and selfishness and lust and greed and on and on we could go. I want you to change the way you live. It's time for you to change. And how are we transformed? By the renewing of our minds. In fact, the Bible tells us here in verse 2 that there are two ways to live. Did you notice that? We can be conformed to this world, so way to live number one is this world. Or we can be renewed in our minds and prove what the will of God is. So way number two is God's will. This world or God's will, those are your choices. And every day we make those choices to live in the ways of the world or the will of God. And what we need to do is change our outward form. By the way, the word metamorphosis means that the inner true nature now takes possession or is reflected in the outward expression of your life. So what you really are in Christ Jesus needs to come out in the way you live. And there's only two ways to live. And when you conform to this world, you walk in the ways of the world, and that code of worldliness covers the Christ within, and you have no witness, and you make no impact. So Paul says, change. And worship is the presenting of the body, and worship is the renewal of the mind. By the way, this is something that is in the present tense. So it's to continue to happen over and over and over and over and over again. It's like getting saved once, but every day I repent and believe again. And continue to walk in Christ. So how in the world do I renew my mind? Let me mention three biblical ways because Paul doesn't mention all of them in Romans 12. The first is regeneration. Have you ever read Titus chapter 3, verse 5? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It starts with a radical change in you. It starts with you turning from your sin and trusting Christ as your savior. And if any person is, is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. Now live in the new. As Pastor Doug read about putting on this new life, same idea with different terms, different language. We must be born from above born again by the Spirit of God. That's where it starts. Then number two is the renewal of the mind, and that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 12, but it's also mentioned in Ephesians verse 23 when it talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man who is renewed in the Spirit of his mind. When you look at that passage in Colossians, it's quickly connected with let the word of God dwell in you richly. The way we renew our minds, again it's by the Holy Spirit, but it's through the word of God. And we must spend more time in God's word so that God's word will spend more time reforming us, renewing us, and changing us. It starts in the mind, it starts internally before it is noticed externally. And then the third thing is the reflection of our life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't have this on the screen, but let me just read it to you. This is the only other time that the word metamorphao is used. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect and contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, if the reflection of your life is on the Word and on Jesus, you begin to become like him. When you see him in the Word, and you pray, and you ask the Spirit of God to change you, you become more like Jesus. And yet you and I don't spend enough time reflecting upon the Savior in the Scriptures. We're being transformed into his likeness from glory to glory. That's sanctification from this position now to this position and hopefully this next position is up and then continuing to go up, continuing to become more like Jesus Christ. That's how renewal takes place. Born again by his spirit, renewed in our hearts with the word, constantly looking at Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. You say, Pastor, I don't think I need to change. Really? (laughs) Don't give me that. I know you better than that. No, you don't know me. You're a person. You're a human being. You're a depraved sinner, just like me. You say, but I'm a believer, and I'm saved, and I've been walking with the Lord a long time. Great. You're not done yet. Remember what we said last week? When Jesus appears, we'll be like him. For we'll see him as the year is. Until then, continue in him. And grow like him. It's not going to happen this year. But in a month, normally in the calendar of America, there is a festive holiday called Halloween. And that's when... Kids, come begging at your door for candy. Growing up, I loved it. As an adult, I hate it. I don't know where the change took place, but between my youth and adulthood, things got dangerous. But kids would come dressed as, you name it, superheroes, right? And they are transforming themselves outwardly. But it does not reflect their true inner being. You say, does the scripture speak about that? Well, it happens to in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You said, have you ever asked the question, is Halloween in the scriptures? Yes, here it is. For such uh, are false apostles, Paul says, their deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers do the same thing, transform themselves into ministers of righteousness when internally they're wicked. By the way, some of your translations, like the NIV, won't use the word transform. They use the word masquerade. It means form, but it means an outward form that's inconsistent with the inward reality, where transformation is an outward form that is consistent with the heart. Too many Christians are masquerading as Christians, never having been born again, not concerned about renewing their mind and Almost never looking for Jesus in the scriptures. And Paul says, You've got to be transformed, and it starts with the rebirth. According to one story that comes out of Japan, there was a very wealthy patron who wanted to play in the imperial orchestra because they were going to have a gig before the emperor. Only one problem, he didn't know a lick of music and couldn't play any instrument. But he was rich and wealthy, so he paid his way in. They gave him a flute and put him in the second row and told him to fake it well. And apparently he played before the emperor. But a new conductor came in and he wanted everyone to audition before him before he would allow them to be in the orchestra. This wealthy patron um, uh, said that he was ill and couldn't make it and he canceled uh, every opportunity he had for an audition until the conductor said, you come now or you're out. And this is what the man had to confess. He was ashamed that he couldn't play an instrument. He was ashamed that he was unable to face the music. You ever heard that phrase? It's time to face the music. It's time. It's past time for some of you. It's time to repent of your sin and come to Christ. It's time, believer, to focus your attention not on the things of this world that are quickly passing away but on God's will that endures forever. It's time to renew your mind and become like Christ for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, so often I preach messages that I need more than anyone else. and I pray that you will reform and change my heart and life to be more consistent in reflecting you more consistent in seeing you in the scriptures, more consistent in mind renewal by the holy word of God so that the outward life matches the inward heart that has been regenerated by the grace of God. And if there's someone here who's never trusted Christ in this moment, may they say, Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sin. Change my heart. And make me a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen.